What's up, everyone? Welcome to an episode of Zero X Research, a show hosted by analysts where we will be talking with the top research talent, project founders, and thought leaders in the space. We're going to ask the hard questions, and we're going to get really deep in the weeds. So if that sounds like it's for you, you're in the right place. My name is Sam Martin. And I'm Dan Smith. You know, this show is made possible by our incredible sponsors, Chainalysis and Flipside. But uh, let's get right into it. You know, today we have a great episode. Uh, we have a uh, super informative interview with Westy from BlockWorks Research. Uh, he covers all things Ethereum infrastructure for our team. Uh, and he really dives into the MEV landscape in proof-of-stake Ethereum. Uh, before we dive into that, we've got a good little intro section for you all, uh, where we're joined with two of our other fellow research analysts here at BlockWorks Research, ZeroX Pibbles and Matt. Guys, how you doing today? What's up? Doing good. Thanks for having us. I think one of my favorite uh, rebrands is smart contract platforms into layer ones. Uh, it's like such a smoother, um, easier to understand term. And, you know, it's it's pretty funny how, how big of an influence that uh, just like a nomenclature and naming mechanism can really have on uh, on you know how how this technology progresses. Uh, Sam, I know you're you're a big NFT guy. Any hot takes? Yeah, here? I'm just really excited about uh, Apple kind of like giving the clear guiding rules around you know what it's going to mean for people trying to integrate NFTs in the App Store. Obviously, they're trying to take the 30% cut rate. Like they want to keep that stranglehold over the market. But in general, I just think now that play and earn games have a clear guideline around what they can do in the App Store and what they can't is is really good news and a big step. Forward. Plus, it looks like they're going to be uh, supporting non-custodial wallets, which I wouldn't have expected. But they are like going to decide where the crypto can actually come from, what kind of tokens can be included, uh, what kind of features the NFTs can really unlock. So it's going to be limited. But I kind of view this as like the gateway drug, and I'm I'm really happy that Apple's finally providing some clarity. I think what's really important here with the digital collectibles is the house money effect, where you have these people who spent like very little money to get in. They make some profits, they have a little more money to play with to stay in crypto. I think that's the most important thing for onboarding new people. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point there. It's like super easy to hate NFTs uh, when you see people making six figures on you know pictures of you know, bored apes and whatnot uh, until you're the person doing it, right? And I think that the red in NFTs brought in a new wave of people who hadn't uh, previously dabbled in the nft markets so yeah it's a i like that take strong agree there what do you guys think about uh the ftx stablecoin? is that surprise you at all or is that something that you're like man why didn't they do that earlier yeah totally why didn't they do that earlier like everyone is launching their own stable coin now like we're seeing with ave and curve although they haven't launched yet um and there's no reason not to right usdc circles making an insane amount of money holding that capital they have 40 some odd billion dollars in you know dollars sitting in short-term treasury notes and even if it's in a bank you know they're getting a ridiculous interest rate on these funds and it just makes so much sense for everyone to have their own stable coin yeah right like even if it's you know short-term treasuries are yielding you know three to four percent three to four percent of like you said 40 billion dollars is uh uh, no small reward. Uh, and we even see Binance kind of moving in this direction with popularizing BUSD for their clients. Like they're really kind of forcing that on there. Uh, I believe recently they announced that they're converting all stable coins on their platform into BUSD and like still giving users the ability to kind of ex- uh, withdraw into a different token. But while they're on exchange, they're held in BUSD. So it's, uh, yeah, I think this is a pretty smart move by them to kind of Capture, uh, capture a new market. Pibbles, in two years, would you say that FTX's stablecoin is bigger or Binance's? That's a tough one. Uh, I think I'm going to go with Binance because Binance is king. Matt, you got a take there? 
I would tend to agree. Binance is so ingrained in the space. And even though maybe in the U.S., FTX and FTX's dollar will be more popular, I think across the globe, Binance is just a, a step ahead. Fair enough. Fair enough. So uh, what do you guys think about Elon taking over Twitter? People are speculating that uh, that, you know, this is kind of a pay on payments, that that's always been his passion, what he wants to do. Do you think there's any crypto integration uh, coming in the future? And uh, is it Dogecoin? So I think Elon's made it clear that there will be payment integration. Now, whether or not it's Dogecoin, I'm not going to speculate on. I would tend to believe probably not. But I don't want to say that because, you know, anyone who long Doge over the last week is up big. You know, we're out here in the governance forums, like looking on chain, spending our time doing in-depth research, and none of us have made as much money this past week as people who are just degen leveraged long, you know, Dogecoin. So, um, you know, salute to the kings and queens out there trading Dogecoin. But honestly, I definitely would tend to believe that that might not be the case. Matt is talking about himself here, by the way. He was leveraged long Dogecoin, <laughs> for the record. No comment. Yeah, I think this is low key. Like, it could be really bullish for Lens. Um, all it takes is, I mean, no matter who takes over Twitter, like, it could be anybody, there's always a rough transition. So, hopefully, Elon fumbles something and ruins Twitter. And then it just really encourages a lot of people to move to Lens. And maybe we can actually make some money off of that somehow. Because if I'm Elon and I'm a profit maxi, I'm just going to throw ads all over Twitter like you've never seen before. I love it. Pibbles with the money move plays always. Uh, let's move into the hot seat, cool throne section of this. Dan, do you want to start us off? Who's your hot seat this week? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, hot seat, alt layer ones. I mean, it's been a it's been a rough go the past couple weeks for this, but especially uh, this past week, right? So we've seen Nier's USN stablecoin was shut down. Uh, it was actually real. They, the team announced that it was under collateralized by about forty million dollars. Um, this USN stablecoin seemed promising uh, and quickly proved to not be. So. Uh, not a good sign there. And then we have Solana TVL falling under $1 billion, which is a pretty actually a big milestone here because Optimism and Arbitrum, uh, two ETH L2s, actually have more TVL than Solana. Uh, so you're kind of seeing that you know, the place to be is Ethereum, uh, and these alt-layer ones are kind of falling off. And then with a, just to put a huge exclamation point on all of it, uh, Kraptos, it's a Raptos. I mean, Aptos was just a brutally botched launch. You know, I, I bridged over there pretty early. It was like ready to play around. And I'm, there's just nothing going on that's any level of exciting. Um, yeah, tried to be like the positive guy when all of crypto Twitter was just shitting on it, but I, I've capitulated. There's no reason to be positive. Uh, so hot seat, definitely alt layer ones. Uh, cool Throne, Zero X NGMI, the founder of DeFi Llama. That man does not stop shipping. Uh, King Shippur. Uh, he recently just launched Llama Lend, which is an NFT uh, lending platform um, on top of all of the data dominance that DeFi Llama is pushing into. Their recent hacks platform or their hacks dashboard is, is, is awesome. Um, you know, I love to, like, it's kind of a scary chart when you see how much money has been exploited from. DeFi, but you know, I think that helps drive uh, innovation and hardening forward, right? Like, you know, it's, we have to accept the fact that uh, they, we've had these mistakes in the past and kind of build off them and move forward. Do you think Xerox not going to make it ever sleeps? Never. There's no way. I'm partially like convinced he's like three different people that pretend to be one, but then like you know, like if you read his tweets and like I'm in a couple of discords with him, uh, them they. 
they're they they're like all the talk is like so fluid. So I, I did have this conspiracy, but I think I've I'm back to it. it's just just one person that is a pure grinder. All right, I could take this one next. Hot seat. I'm kind of riding off the coattails of Dan, but I'm going Anatoly. After the the mango exploit or poorly designed protocol that was taken advantage of, he uh, or not him, but other people have been tweeting how Solana DeFi is just absolutely dead. And I saw he liked one of the tweets, so that is enough to get it on the hot seat for this week. In terms of Cool Throne, I would definitely have to go with the ZK EVM teams. They're all kind of fighting on Twitter over open source code and whatnot, but in general, I think they're all educating a lot of people on ZK Tech through their like Twitter accounts and, and blog posts. So I think that's awesome, and I think it's pushing the space forward. Pibbles, you want to go next? Yeah, I got it. So my hot seat is definitely ApeCoin and that entire DAO. They don't know what the hell they're doing with staking, Uh, They put up a proposal literally yesterday um, talking about a $5 million bug bounty on the staking contract, which is supposed to go live next week. Um, So they want to get it audited so that, I mean, just that way, like nothing goes horribly wrong because we know that board apes love to lose money in all kinds of different ways. Um, so what's funny actually is that the bug bounty proposal is currently not going through. So everyone's voting against it because they want staking as soon as possible. So this kind of sets the precedent for the community. Are they going to be like fast and reckless or slow and careful? Um, if the bug bounty passes, then staking rewards would be delayed until December. But if the bug bounty doesn't pass, then staking will probably go live next week. Rewards start mid-November, and someone's going to exploit it probably. Then for Cool Throne, I have Pantoshi just on crypto Twitter. He got bearish at like 60k Bitcoin. He sold the top. Uh, I think maybe like two weeks ago, he started buying his coins back, like Ethereum, probably like 1300 Bitcoin, 19k level. And he kind of just rode this rally like a king, and then he sold everything at the top, and now he's just vibing. So, God tier trader. Strong agree on that one. Pentoshi's like one of the only big accounts that I actually like truly respect. That guy nailed this last cycle. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he literally called the top. For my hot seat, I'm going with Core Scientific. Core Scientific is one of North America's largest Bitcoin mining companies. And their stock is down 99% from the top in November of last year. It was down 78% on Thursday last week alone. They have over a billion dollars in debt, a lot of which is to creditors like BlockFi, Anchorage, NYDIG. Um, So we might see like a a potential bankruptcy could have a butterfly effect that goes into other areas of crypto, which obviously would not be ideal. Also, they're currently operating at a loss as their electricity cost is rising and Bitcoin's price is too low for them to making a profit. So whether or not they're going to go bankrupt or if the stocks buy or sell, I have no idea. I'm not an equity analyst, but clearly they're in some trouble. So they deserve to be in the hot seat, I think. As far as my cool throne, it's going over to the kings at Golden Tree and Golden Chain. Um, Golden Tree is a huge hedge fund, $45 billion. And the crypto traders over there are the Golden Chain you know, part of the company. They longed sushi about 20 some odd days ago and their bags are up at least 60% since they did. They announced it publicly. So I could say with a high degree of confidence that a large portion of their gain was from their public announcement. 
um, even crazier if they wanted to, they could probably like get a net short position, sell their, you know, public on chain bag, everyone knows their address and ride it even crazier. Um, I'm not saying they're going to do that. They probably won't, but it's just insane to see what they're doing. And this kind of activist investment in crypto is definitely something that's going to be repeated. Um, they're setting a, they're setting the stage. Everyone's going to kind of copy them if I had to guess. And I think that, you know, the king, kings and queens traders over there definitely deserve a, a head nod and yeah strong agree there yeah. couldn't agree more i think that's a trend that we'll see continue uh dan you want to get uh, our flip side chart of the day pulled up so we have this great dashboard here that actually matt flagged uh he, he actually tweeted about this yesterday and uh, it's it's built by kakamura from uh, a he's an analyst over at flipside crypto and this is a great dashboard covering all things sushi. Uh, so he's got a couple different tabs here, ranging from user interactions, transaction volume, fees and revenue, uh, breaks down some of their liquidity pools, and even some market share analysis. Uh, and so for those, uh, th those of you that are listening rather than watching on YouTube, you know, some of these charts uh, are super informative, right? Like I always find it pretty entertaining to go look at like transaction volumes and revenues uh on different blockchains for these protocols that are cross-chain now and you know like we still see ethereum mainnet uh accounting for 95 96 percent of all revenue for sushi swap even though it has launched uh, on some of these other l2s and so they're gradually gaining traction but uh you know we're still kind of in that development phase um, and then transaction volumes for dexes i think is always a really fascinating metric uh, you know when we see that uh, the peak back in November, uh, you know, transactions on SushiSwap kind of topped out around 1.7-ish uh, million uh, transactions, and now we're kind of fallen uh, right around that 900K level. Uh, so, you know, on-chain activity has definitely cooled off, and like, Dex, Dex, uh, Dex transactions and Dex volume is a great way to monitor this. Uh, but Matt, actually, you flagged two really interesting charts, and I'd love to dive into those and kind of get you to, to walk us through what you, what you found out here. Yeah, so it's actually really nice finding these, this dashboard because Sushi is a protocol that doesn't have a whole lot of great data out there. Um, normally, I'd have to query it myself and have you know other teammates at BlockWorks Research help me. So coming across this was great. Just looking through it as I wrote my report on Sushi last week, the bull and bear case. You should check that out. There's a good Twitter thread too. Just a little plug. Um, but anyways, I saw this chart and it's you know it's interesting to see that more than 50% of users across all of the chains that Sushi's deployed on are trading on Arbitrum. So like. That's a lot, right? When they launched on Ethereum initially, I would have totally expected Ethereum to have the majority of traders, but it was really interesting to see this. I then went and checked another chart, which was their volume charts. So here we saw like the volume split up by chains. And as you can see, Arbitrum only accounts for about 20% of the total volume. So while there's a ton of trading going on on Arbitrum SushiSwap, there's not as much volume as on Ethereum mainnet, which still makes up far the majority. There's a few possible theses of why this could be true. The, you know, I guess the optimistic one would be that because Arbitrum has low transaction fees, you know, people who don't aren't don't have enough capital to trade on Ethereum mainnet can go to Arbitrum to trade smaller amounts of capital, maybe a little more pessimistically and maybe also, in my opinion, maybe a little more likely. It's probably people hunting for an RB token airdrop, just using the network, you know, maybe wash trading. Um, but no matter what, it's interesting to see so much activity on Arbitrum. And it's it's really good to see at the end of the day, because as Ethereum scales and more users come on, next bull run comes around, it's like Ethereum mainnet's fees will do the same thing that happened last time. So we, we will need these rollups in order to support Ethereum scaling. It's also great that someone was able to make this dashboard with Flipside because, you know, this data is really hard to come by. Yeah, and this was a great find. Um, just to kind of re recap what you said for those of you, again, listening and not watching along on YouTube. Uh, so basically, 
we have two charts here, and the first one is a distribution of users by blockchain, uh, and it shows that about 50% uh, or so of SushiSwap users are using Ethereum mainnet, and or excuse me, are using Arbitrum, uh, and while only about like 30 or so percent are on Ethereum mainnet. So the users themselves, uh, counting the wallet addresses, and then if we go over and look at the distribution of swap volume, so rather than counting the wallets, uh, we're counting the amount of dollars traded, uh, and we'll see that the, kind of the opposite is true, and there's 76% of transaction volume is occurring on mainnet, while a smaller portion, only 20%, is on Arbitrum. Uh, so we have 50% of the users on Arbitrum, but only 20% of the transaction volume. Uh, and I, I definitely agree with your slightly more pessimistic take, Matt. Uh, I think that this is really, it's, it's airdrop hunting season. You know, we're in the depths of a bear market. There's not a lot going on. Like, people are hunting these airdrops. I think it was uh, just yesterday, Nansen, uh, on the trending contracts on Nansen were literally all just potential airdrops. Um, so definitely kind of feeling like that's the direction we're moving right now. Uh, yeah, and again, just want to give uh, a special shout out to Flipside for this data. You know, they have the most comprehensive on-chain data in crypto uh, to help you get the insights that you need to work smarter. Uh, and they give you the ability to instantly query this data yourself. Uh, and if you don't have like the SQL skills to do so, uh, I highly recommend that you kind of take the time to dive into SQL. It's, it's pretty easy to learn as far as programming languages go. Um, and it just gives you the opportunity to, to you know, kind of build these dashboards and create this analysis yourself. But if that's not the case, uh, Flipside does have like a public dashboard uh, or public dashboards that anybody can go check out, uh, just like this one here. We'll link this in the show notes for sure. Uh, and definitely be sure to check out uh, uh, the exclusive offer that Flipside has set up for us, right? So ZeroX Research listeners have an exclusive opportunity to earn up to $75 in USDC uh, just by completing a simple bounty. Again, we will link that uh, in the show notes, but be sure to check that out. Um, and yeah, one more chart I want to take a look at here and kind of get your, your take on, Matt. So this is monthly breakdown of Sushi's market share uh, on Ethereum mainnet. And it compares sushi, sushi swap volumes to that of Uniswap, Curve, and Balancer. Uh, and if you can see back in 2021, you know, the market share was pretty solid. Like sushi swaps uh, annotated in this pink chart or this pink color here. And they had like a, a respectable size of the market uh, back in early 2021. But as time's gone on, Uniswap and Curve have kind of eaten away uh, at that market share. And what do you, I was curious to get your take. You know, you're our in-house sushi expert. So I'd love to get your take on what sushi can do and what they can focus on to kind of regain some of that market share. Yeah, and just to clear one little thing up about the past chart I went over, I forgot to mention, it's just that both of those statistics, the 50, over 50% of users and 20% of volume are both for the month of October. So this is like new and it hadn't been true in the past. Anyways, to Dan's next question, sushi's like, you know, the technology that it deploys right now is Uniswap V2, and it's not really competitive in the market compared to Uniswap V3 and Curve. You know, they're just better technologies and Uniswap V2 can't really compete. They are working on something called Trident, which is a concentrated liquidity AMM. If Sushi is to come back and like take back their market share and maybe even take over the market, they need Trident to be extremely successful. It needs to be more capital efficient and it needs to attract enough LPs so then it has deep liquidity pairs. And once it has deep liquidity pairs, it'll get the, you know, the trade it'll get the trading volume and once it has the trading volume it'll get the fees so like it needs that flywheel in order to succeed 
Additionally, Sushi's working on a couple other things that I think could really help with it, like entrenching it and its market share. They're the first decks that I know of that launched, or they're not the first, but the biggest that launched an omni-chain decks, meaning you can trade across chains. So they use Stargate to do that. But if you want to say, use your USDC on ETH mainnet and go buy GMX token on Arbitrum, you can actually do that in one click on Sushi. It's called X-Trade or X-Swap, Sushi X-Swap. So I think they need to like continue to capture that market, the omni-chain market, and that'll help entrench them in the long term as well. Two more things that I think would really help is right now their spending and their treasury is kind of out of line. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of, you know, maybe they've had issues with leadership in the past that have led to not great organization within the DAO. But I think this is actually being worked on currently. They just hired a new chef, Jared Gray. Um, and kind of his whole job is to audit the protocol, audit the team, see where money's being spent that maybe it shouldn't, how the, how the protocol should move forward. So I think he's really going to help with that. But definitely they need to get their organization in check and uh, their treasury spending. And lastly, I would say that that they kind of need a new tokenomic design. Um, the way the Sushi token works today is a little outdated. It's not very sexy for investors. And I think that a, a revamp of the token would really help with, you know, bringing them back into kind of the common narrative. Yeah, some of these uh, Gen 1 tokens definitely could use a revamp. There's no doubt about that. Um, and yeah, I also agree, like their partnership with Layer Zero and doing that omni-chain activity is pretty bullish, in my opinion. Um, but Sam, anything else you want to hit here or should we kind of jump over and uh, get ready to get ready for this interview with Westy? No, I think that's all we got. Thanks for coming on, uh, Pibbles and Matt. That was great. It's my pleasure. Of course. Thanks for having us. Before we get over to our interview with Westy on MEV and Proof of Stake Ethereum, I need to shout out Chainalysis. They have some of the best on-chain forensics tools of anyone in the space, and you can always be sure that the data is accurate. They also have great research on their site on the Insights tab, which we can link to the show notes. Super underrated tool, great insights, and I highly recommend you check them out. Over to Westy. Westy, great to have you on, man. We're really excited to chat about this uh, recent uh, report you wrote. Uh, it was titled MEV in Proof of Stake Ethereum. Westy, how are you doing today? Doing well, man. Appreciate you guys having me on. Love to hear it. So yeah, so this is all kind of a, uh, about the, the MEV process in the proof of stake Ethereum uh, world we're now living in post-merge. Uh, and so you, like right at the beginning of this report, uh, you kind of gave a great definition of what MEV is. And uh, you, that is the amount of profit that a privileged entity can generate by including, excluding, or reordering transactions from the block they produce. Uh, and so that in the proof of work Ethereum world, you kind of go into how that was like the miner's role. Uh, but now with this transition to proof of stake, uh, there's like a different process for what this is. So I'd love to hear a little bit about like what this process is uh, and the creator of this process, right? So Flashbots. So uh, if you could dive into what Flashbots is and what MEV Boost is, uh, I'd love to hear like kind of how that transaction flow works. Definitely. Uh, going back to that, that definition, I kind of want to change that a bit. At the end, I said um, it comes from transactions from the blocks that they produce, which inherently basically suggests that only privileged entities are the miners or the validators, which is the case uh, in Ethereum, but with something, let's say like Solana, the, the privilege actor isn't necessarily a validator, but the privilege actor is um, the entity that has the fastest latency because they can essentially um, order the transactions the way they want because they were able to extract the MEV opportunity that others couldn't. Um, so just wanted to clarify that first um, because MEV obviously doesn't just exist on Ethereum. Um, but yeah, I'd love to, I guess, start giving sort of a background on MEV, like how the concept came to be. Um, essentially, 
I think it was 2019, there was a, a paper written called Flash Boys 2.0, which was like the first paper to actually define MEV in a similar way that I just defined it. And it basically highlighted like arbitrage opportunities, um, sandwich attacks, like things that existed as a result of DEXs on smart contract platforms. Um, and this basically opened up the doorway for more research on uh, MEV, like how is ex how it's extracted, how like certain entities can extract it, and it's sort of opened up the door for um, research entities to come in who are specifically focused on MEV. And one of those was Flashbots, which was created in 2020, um, and it wanted to essentially mitigate the negative externalities of MEV, and those can be like centralization because of one entity is the only one that's extracting this MEV. Um, all of a sudden they can, especially in a proof of stake network, they can accumulate more stake than other validators. And all of a sudden you have some sort of, sort of centralization function, uh, which is just not good for the network. And then also bot spamming, because like I said, on Solana, um, MEV is extracted using latency. And like that's obviously not good because it increases the, the gas cost and something like Ethereum, like prior to... Uh, Mev, Geth, um, essentially MEV was extracted through like bot spamming, which was just not good. Um, and so it wanted to mitigate these negative externalities as well as just bring sort of transparency to MEV because it was kind of like a, a dark forest, which is actually a paper written by um, Paradigm about MEV. Like it was, no one really knew what was going on. So it wanted to bring transparency democratize the access to this MEV reward so it wasn't by the same entities and figuring out the most sustainable way to distribute that MEV. Um, and so first they created MEV Geth, which was basically like a version of the Go Ethereum client, but it had some sort of sealed ID block space auction. And rather than a transaction going through the mempool, it would go through this MEV Geth auction and there would be different parties along the way that would essentially compete for the right to be included in a block. And we can get to that the transaction flow in a second. But like this competition basically meant like net, less network congestion because you didn't see those bot spammers and then less centralization. Um, so it really did um, mitigate those negative externalities of MEV. And miners that used MEV Geth got, I think over 100% APR increase in rewards. And so it was pretty, um, lucrative, and I think 80 to 90% of miners are running this client. And then now in a proof-of-stake world, they upgraded that to MEV Boost, which we can get into now if if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, you know, Flashbots was this uh, entity that kind of like was created to develop ways to like mitigate uh, the negative ex externalities of MEV, uh, and they kind of created this system called MEV Boost. So yeah, I'd love to dive in there, uh, kind of what that system is, and especially like that transaction flow. Uh, you made a great, uh, a great image here uh, that kind of highlights how this transaction flow, uh, ex like what it looks like, and I'd love to share screen here uh, just so the audience can see what this looks like. So here's uh, sharing the screen here. Here's this transaction flow. So if you, you could just like walk us through this, uh, what each of these parties uh, is responsible for doing and kind of how this system breaks down. Certainly, yeah. So it starts from the user. They basically have a transaction intent saying, I want this transaction included. And essentially it sends out an RPC, which is basically um, communication, basically saying, I want this transaction included. 
and that either go is routed through some sort of public RPC infrastructure and goes to a public mempool where like anyone can see the transactions that um, people want included, or it goes to some private uh, RPC service, and we can get to the concept of exclusive order flow later, but going from the, the public mempool essentially uh, goes through the first to people called searchers, which basically take these transactions um, and order them into bundles that extract MEV. Um, and essentially they can then bribe the block builders, the next entity, to have those bundles included, conditional on the MEV opportunity they, that they, they are looking to capture. And essentially they profit the spread between the bribe that they give the block builder and then the MEV that they were able to capture. Uh, the next entity, like I said, is the block builder. So they're in charge of taking those bundles from searchers and then any other transactions that maybe there wasn't MEV um, opportunities involved. They take all of that. They try and basically produce the, the highest value block they possibly can. Um, and then they, in the same way as searchers, then pay um, the validators essentially um, a cut of the revenue that they were able to generate, one from the searcher's bribes as well as any other opportunities from transactions um, to be included, and they, they make that spread. And then between the block builders and the relay, or in the validators, is the relays, which is essentially just like a filter mechanism. So they ensure that the blocks themselves are valid, and then they rank them based on economic value um, within the blocks and how much they're willing to pay. Um, and then um, from there, you have validators, which communicate with uh, either multiple relays or a specific relay of their choice to get the most profitable block header that they can find, and then they validate and finalize that block on chain. Um, and like the relays are sort of the entity that's most concerning when it comes to censorship because of that filtering. Like because they're able to filter, they can basically say like we only want blocks that are OFAC compliant. Um, and sort of that's where a lot of the contention comes from when it comes to censorship. Um, but I yeah, if you have any other questions on sort of the the flow, um, the different actors in the supply chain. Yeah, definitely ask away. Yeah, I'm curious. So, so the private RPC is the only, uh, I guess, step in this equation that's going to be skipped is the searchers. So it just goes straight to the block builders. That makes a lot of sense. But then how does all of this MEV actually end up into people staking ETH? Like if I'm staking ETH with Lido, how, how do I get my yield? How do I get my MEV and my tips? I'm not sure if you're asking specifically about the exclusive order flow, but in general, how it goes to the validators is, like I said, you have searchers that basically bribe the block builders to have their transactions included. Then the block builders bribe the validators, or at least pay the validators based on um, the value that their block provides. And sort of that value, because, um, because of the competition between searchers and between block builders, that like spread is going to be minimized. And so essentially, that's like capturing MEV and bringing it to the validators. It's not 100% of the MEV, but it's pretty close to it, given that there's competition at each of these levels. Okay, and on the same vein, is there uh, like sufficient competition right now? Like, is, is MevBoost censorship resistant, or would you say that there's like a lot more work to be done on that front? Yeah, that's a good question. I think at like the searcher level, I think it's definitely, there's good competition because like, 
a lot of people want to extract med for themselves. And so the searchers definitely, there's a lot of competition. Um, one of the issues I see with the design of MedBoost um, is sort of like the block builder because um, essentially they can see all the same transactions a searcher can, um, which is kind of a problem. And they can also see the bundles and the transactions in the bundles that are sent from searchers. So block builders really wanted to, they could front run the searchers, basically see the MEV opportunities and capture it themselves. Um, so I wonder, is this, this happening right now? I, I guess not, but I wonder, because there's really nothing stopping them other than maybe if block builders start doing this and searchers will stop sending their bundles to them. But if block builders can therefore make better blocks because they extract the MEV opportunities and not searchers, maybe um, that's the direction things go. I'm not sure. So that's sort of one um, problem of contention. And then the relays is sort of its own issue. Um, so you obviously uh, you, you have like five different relays, which we can go through, which are Flashbots, Manifold, Blocks, Route. Blocks, Route actually use three of them, um, Eden and Block Native. And this competition like between the relays is interesting because, I mean, we'll get to the data later, but essentially... Um, Flashbots is the only relay that is permissionless, meaning that any block builder can send them a block, whereas other relays aren't permissionless. So basically you have to be on a white list in order to have your, your block um, being sent to the relay. And um, Flashbots is also an OFAC compliant relay, and so they're censoring. Um, and because of these two factors, um, like Flashbots is usually building the highest value blocks with their relay. I think they're being used 80% of the time, uh, which is definitely a problem um, because of the um, censorship. Um, so really what we need to see is like more a combination of permissionless and um, non-censoring relays. I think we just got one from Builder Zero uh, X sixty nine is one of the the biggest block builders. He he just built a new relay, relay that's both permissionless and um, non censoring. And so I think like the relays is definitely the biggest point of contention when it comes to censorship. And I think there just needs to be more competition, more open source nature when it comes to these relays. Um, and I'm excited to see sort of what the future holds because you know a lot of people are complaining about the censorship, and I think. There's a lot of ways in which we can mitigate it at this level. It sounds like the uh, the process of MevBoost itself is inherently not censorship uh, pr prone to censorship. It comes down to this relay section. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, so it comes down to like relays and then the interaction with the block builders and the relays because, yeah, like I said, the relays are sort of the filter. So they explicitly choose um, like which blocks they want, and they're going to choose OFAC compliant blocks. Um, but then there's also block builders that need to build those blocks, so they need to also censor if they want to be included in the Flashbots relay, for example. And so, yeah, because the relays are essentially filtering and choosing OFAC-compliant blocks and that um, Flashbots is both OFAC-compliant and permissionless, uh, I think that that's sort of, yeah, what's contributing to the censorship. Would you say that uh, centralized exchanges, like because they run a lot of validators, do you think that they're a threat to the censorship of Ethereum, or do you think for them it's in their best interest to not censor transactions and, and avoid a hard fork if it eventually did come to that? I mean, it's definitely 
it obviously depends on their jurisdiction. Like, are they in the U.S.? Did, did they see, like, do they need to be OFAC compliant? Do they think that they need to be OFAC compliant? I think that's a, that's a big issue. But I think beyond that, I think it's definitely in their best interest to not censor. Well, well to one, opt into MEV Boost because they get an increase in validator rewards, but also two, to not censor because non-censoring blocks, just from the fact that they get more transactions included, should therefore lead to higher rewards. Um, so just from like a, a profit perspective, it's obviously better. But I mean, exchanges make money because people are buying coins that at least are perceived to have value. And if all of a sudden, like ETH's value drops because it becomes some sort of censorship chain, well, that's obviously bad for the exchanges in turn. And so I think there, yeah, there's definitely a lot of value in these exchanges, like trying not to be um, censorship prone, but I mean, we'll see a lot of these, I mean, it looks like, um, well, Binance, first of all, has finally opted in half of their blocks, it looks like, to MEV Boost, um, and are choosing Flashbots as their majority relay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd love to see how this goes, because a lot of them are just producing vanilla blocks, which I'm not sure if they're um, censoring or not, which is sort of also an issue. Um, but yeah, I think they go in the direction of non-censoring and extracting as much value as possible. That that makes a lot of sense. Now, for the people who are listening on Apple or Spotify, I think it'd be helpful to maybe walk them through a transaction and how it would all look. Like, can you do that on basically if it's going to a public mempool, but then also if it's exclusive order flow and kind of an example to to give the the listener a better understanding for where the threats lie for exclusive order flow? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's pretty simple when it goes through uh, public RPC. So yeah, you have your transaction intent, goes to the public mempool. Um, and then if there's an MEV extraction opportunity, a searcher sees that transaction and then extracts the MEV. But if there isn't an MEV opportunity, just, just goes straight to the block builders who are going to include it in their block. And then from there, like it goes through the relay, um, whichever block, um, either as the highest value or highest value within a relay of a validator's choice, well, then that block gets included and your transaction gets included. Um, if let's say like your transaction is like a censored transaction, so you come from a list, let's say you use Tornado Cash and your sanctions, well, what's, how that's going to work is you go on the public mempool, um, searchers might pick it up if there's an MEV opportunity, and then block builders will, depending on if the block builder wants to build an OFAC compliant block or not, well, they'll, they'll see your transaction and they'll include it if they don't want to be compliant or if they do, they won't include it. Um, and then, yeah, it, it usually takes, um, because there's 40, well, we assume that there's 40% 40 40 of blocks that aren't being censored. It's going to take, on average, two and a half blocks for your transaction to be included, which really isn't that long. It's like 30 seconds. Um, but if we see more adoption of MedBoost and um, the Flashbots Relay still has the, the highest market share there, then that could be more of an issue and you could have to wait longer. Um, but that's sort of how it works. And then, yeah, we can definitely get into exclusive order flow. So that obviously depends. 
So exclusive order flow to define it is essentially um, transactions that a, a subset of searchers and block builders can have access to that others don't. And that's what makes it exclusive. And essentially because of this, um, you'd think that either these searchers can extract more MVV, the block builders that have access to it can build higher value blocks, which is sort of a, a centralization force, but it's also like there's an incentive there to have exclusive order flow because you can essentially extract more MEV than other people can. And we're sort of seeing exclusive order flow emerge um, as like um, a lot of protocols are trying to extract exclusive order flow. So the, the biggest we've seen so far is Manifold, um, which is one of the bigger players in the, the MEV space, but essentially they're trying to have transactions routed through their RPC so that they explicitly can either extract the MEV opportunities themselves or um, block MEV opportunities um, from the end user. And if they do extract MEV, rather than that ending up in the validator's hands, that it goes back to the user. And so, yeah, exclusive order flow, I think, is going to be a pretty hot, hot topic throughout the next six months to the next couple of years because I think that's sort of the next place in which people are competing because they're able to essentially front run this MEV boost um, design because if I just send it to this the private RPC for exclusive order flow, it never like sees um, these like open source searchers or builders. Like it's sort of once again like a dark forest in its own place. And I think yeah, we're going to see more people compete for their right to have exclusive order flow. And I think we're going to see um, what looks similar in sort of tradfi venues where you have payment to order flow. And so you're going to have um, entities that are willing to essentially pay users to have their order flow go through them, and maybe they extract MEV or other opportunities that way. And, I mean, I'd rather have um, an MEV boost design because all the MEV opportunities are open source, they're democratized, anyone can uh, extract them, whereas if you have some sort of exclusive order flow, that's obviously a centralization risk. Um, so there's sort of two sides of the coin where you're incentivized to have exclusive order flow, but that's obviously really bad. Uh, for the chain in general. If you can't tell, we love data here at Blockroots Research, and Chainalysis, the leading blockchain analytics company, shares this passion with us. We use data to extract alpha and find the next thing coming in DeFi, but Chainalysis is doing the gritty work and building trust in blockchains. To onboard the next trillion dollars of capital into the industry, we need to grow safe consumer access to cryptocurrency and promote more financial freedom with less risk. Chainalysis has some of the most comprehensive and reliable data in the space, and they use this data to power a full suite of their solutions that can be utilized by industry professionals. Best-in-class training and certifications are also led by Chainalysis and some of the brightest minds in the space. If you haven't heard of Chainalysis, you got to check them out, and we'll link to them in the show notes. This seems like a perfect opportunity to kind of segue into, you know, you mentioned Manifold and how they're, they're uh, creating tools for protocols to use uh, uh, in secure RPC and open MEV. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what they do uh, and kind of how that kind of creates this environment for where uh, it might be beneficial to protocols themselves to, to route this exclusive order flow. Yeah, definitely can go into more detail on Manifold. So yeah, they have two products which are secure RPC and open MEV and they work um, sort of in tandem with each other. So secure RPC is their RPC service 
So essentially, like a user and application, when you want to send a transaction, the RPC will be routed to them. So that's sort of where we saw the exclusive order flow um, within the, the transaction flow we saw earlier. And then OpenMEV is like a service built on top of this. And it's basically allows protocols to recapture the MEV that gets created through user transactions on their platform. And then that either gets like distributed back to the, the users or it gets distributed back to the protocol's revenue. And we've seen SushiSwap um, integrated with OpenMEV. So now any trade on SushiSwap can basically um, use OpenMEV and they specifically design sort of like an auction-based engine for bundling trades. So you can think of it similar to CowSwap's coincidence of wants. Um, and then OpenMEV can basically use secure RPC in whatever unique way um, to help like the MEV of that specific protocol. So SushiSwap, um, like that sort of coincidence of wants type style trading is perfect for designing MEV around like specifically how SushiSwap is designed. But if a different protocol is designed differently, wants to sort of mitigate or um, extract MEV for themselves in a different way, they're going to design a different system, which is definitely uh, unique um, and exciting in its own um, way. But obviously, as we said before, this is a centralization risk. But in terms of like Manifold's perspective for them, there's sort of a flywheel and that like the more essentially transactions that they can route through secure RPC through open MEV, they're able to essentially build the most blocks because they're also a block builder, build the highest value blocks, which means they're going to be more likely to uh, be included. And then from there, essentially other protocols can see, hey, they're extracting this MEV and it's coming back to us and our users. We're going to route our trades through them and it becomes a flywheel where more, more protocols are more likely to use their exclusive order flow and then Manifold is able to build higher value blocks and generate revenue based on the MEV they extract as well, uh, which is super interesting. So essentially it sounds like uh, Manifold has created its own private RPC so it can create this uh, environment where it can capture this exclusive order flow. Uh, and then it, and it created this uh, like an auction system where it can then take these uh, its private order flow uh, and mix it with the public mempool to create higher value blocks and uh, because they're having they're picking from a larger pool of transactions right and, you know if there's a massive trade uh, to, to purchase eth on sushi swap right then that would that would definitely create the opportunity for mev uh, and they can again if this was coming through a private route uh, then they have the ability to use this trade when no, no other searchers do so uh, you know, it definitely makes sense it's like all right mev's inevitable uh, let's kind of create this environment where we can capture it and then give it to essentially hand it to the protocols. And now it's on the protocols to say, hey, do we want to give this back to our users? Uh, like, what do we want to do with this extra value? Uh, so it's kind of a cool, it's, it's, to me, it's really fascinating that they've like accepted that this will exist uh, and kind of like trying to repurpose it uh, and allow protocols to have the option uh, to, to go and, and repurpose this MEV and maybe give it back to the users. Uh, and the flywheel that you mentioned is like super intriguing, right? Like, more private order flow leads to creating the ability to have more transactions that can create higher value blocks. Uh, and then once, you know, the protocol starts seeing this, like, hey, like these, this is a huge opportunity and it's only growing that kind of like it's like this positive feedback loop. More more users will want to jump in here uh, and, and kind of, you know, participate in this. 
So yeah, it's it's really cool to see them capturing this. But you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like a couple other players in this space. I know that you mentioned Eden, Blocks Route, and Block Native. I uh, you know don't want to dive too deep on here, but if you can just kind of like briefly mention the services that the three of these offer, it'd be great to have a recap there. Yeah. So the biggest entities in sort of the MEV space, um, they all run their own relay. They all build their own blocks as well. Um, so just keep that in mind, but yeah, the, the three like other entities that we haven't touched on are Eden network. So it's like similar to Manifold that has, um, like a suite of products. They have their own private RPC that tries to like, uh, minimize MEV for their users. Um, and then you have blocks route, which, um, is trying to essentially increase the scalability of blockchain networks through like, they have basically their own servers that are super high performant. And they, so people use them for like mempool data and like direct transaction routing, things along those lines. And so it made sense for them to get involved in sort of the, the MEV space. Uh, and then you have Block Native, which is sort of in a similar vein, like a real time data platform for blockchain, blockchain transactions uh, focused on Ethereum. And like you can look at them to gauge like gas prices, like simulate transaction execution, like what that would look like. And so, like, in a similar vein, it made sense for them to get involved in the, the MEV space. Um, so, yeah, they all run relays and build their own blocks as well. Awesome. So now that we kind of got this, like, uh, we got to hit all the, the important information on, like, what this space looks like, what MEV, MEV Boost is, uh, and how the transaction flow works, I'd love to get into to my the most exciting part to me, which is the data. Awesome. So I'm sharing my screen here uh, and I'd love to dive into, you know, I think like the one of the burning questions people probably have is, okay, so MEV, you know, we hear all about it. We understand how to capture it. But what does the reward size actually look like? Uh, in your report, you, you noted that about 27% of staking awards come from MEV. Uh, so if you, you could walk us through these, this validator reward chart here, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. So essentially, this is taking data from the block rewards, so essentially um, transaction fees that go to validators, that's the block reward. And then p potential MEV is um, how much like the relay is reporting their highest value block to be paying um, for any like validated block. And so I say that's potential MEV because relays can lie about that number if they wanted to. But obviously, if they lie too much, people will stop sending blocks to that relay and validators will stop choosing that relay. And so they're incentivized to be honest. But I mean, we can see that huge spike on, I think that was October 15th, um, because Manifold's relay was going out of control. It was basically saying there were much higher, higher payments uh, for blocks than there really were for about 12 hours, but they, they fixed that issue. So looks like things are fine now. But if you, yeah, you take out that entry uh, essentially 20% of the staking rewards have come through MEV. Um, and then like per day, the amount of MEV extract on the average has been 119 throughout the, the validators, which I mean, obviously shows that there is an incentive if you're a validator to opt into ME boost and achieve these extra rewards. Um, because what that's a 37% increase in your APR from staking which is definitely nice. Um, but yeah, that's what this represents showing. Well, we know MEV accrues to the, the validators, but what does that actually look like compared to just the general block reward? 
So in you know the depths of the bull market, or excuse me, the depths of the bear market we're currently in, uh, you know, it, is it is we're seeing around you know twenty ish percent uh, of staking rewards be generated from MEV. Uh, was it fair to think that in a bull market this would become uh, become like an increasing percentage of staking rewards? I mean, my thought process here is kind of more transactions will be occurring on chain uh, in the heat of a bull market, and with like a lot of that being through dexes. Uh, and like, did, I'm thinking more transactions means more opportunities to reorder to like reorder, add, remove transactions, and create uh, MEV opportunities. Is that something you would agree with, or am I kind of off base there? Yeah, it's definitely good. Um, there's definitely an interaction between like the block reward and how many transactions there are. But I do agree that yeah, like and definitely in a bull market mania, you're gonna have a lot more speculation on DEXs. There's gonna be a lot more opportunities for arbitrage or sandwiches, et cetera. Um, and so yeah, I do agree, but also baked in this question is like when we get a new bull run, what the, when is that? And do we have sort of um, a thriving roll-up ecosystem where um, maybe those specific rollups are actually extracting MEV themselves before it goes down to layer one. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously that that could um, detract from the amount of MEV that's actually extracted at the base level if most of the transactions and the speculations happening on rollups. So that's like an interesting question to think about as well. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. That. You know, if a lot of this, uh, if a lot of transaction activity really does shift to L2s, like it likely will in the near future, um, it'd be very, yeah, it'd be very fascinating, especially since a lot of these L2s still have uh, pretty centralized sequencers. You know, this creates massive opportunities uh, for the, the entities that are running these L2s. Uh, but I'd love to, you know, keep pushing along through the data here. And this chart we are sharing now is kind of valid, validator participation by relay. And as you can see, you know, right when the merge occurred, there was like a very low percentage of uh, validators, uh, the percentage of blocks that were produced through MEV boost. And as time has gone on, that, that number has significantly increased, right? So, you know, about a couple of days in, we we're around 20%, uh, but now we're up to more around like 60, 60 or so percent. Um, you know, this is a clear uptrend in the post-merge environment. And do you think this kind of keeps continuing? Uh, will it ever reach 100%? And if so, like, what are the implications of that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I do think it will keep trucking upwards. I think most of, like, the move we've seen is the biggest we've seen so far. I don't think it will eventually get to 100. Um, I mean, for the same reasons why it was kind of low at the beginning, you have some validators that are just like stake their ETH, like haven't even thought about it, don't want, like don't even know how to connect to a relay. There's definitely some of those entities out there that are staking their ETH that way, but I do think eventually it'll probably get to 90% plus um, in terms of people that are opting into MEV boost simply because you're getting more rewards. And like, like we said before, like if there is some sort of bull run mania in the, the near future, like those rewards are going to be very significant. And so there's going to be a lot of incentive to opt in. But yeah, like our definitely more interesting, interesting question is what happens if we get to 100% or close to it? Um, I think the good is obviously like MEV boost works. Like you get more, um, like we said, more rewards as a validator, but also it brings complete transparency to the MEV that's being extracted because we can can see it through the process that it goes through, which is obviously really good. It's gonna minimize the negative externalities of MEV as much as possible. 
obviously the bad is, well, what does that like look like in terms of um, the percentage of like relays chosen? So like we talked about before, if, if we get to, let's say, 100% and 90% of those blocks go through Flashbot's relay, well, they're going to be censored. And what does that look like? Um, I think it's fine because as long as you have some blocks that aren't censoring, then any censored transaction can get through. They just have to wait. But as you climb higher and higher in, into that, those numbers, like at what point does it become consensus that, okay, we do need to censor? I don't think that's ever going to happen, but obviously it becomes more of a an issue and sort of a thought point. Um, so yeah, that's sort of what it would look like once we get to the those higher numbers, but I expect that we see more relay diversity going forward. Yeah, and just so people uh, don't get scared listening to the idea of that, because there's a lot of unknown. I'm I'm curious, like Ethereum's trying to implement proposer builder separation, so this whole MevBoost deal is actually an interim solution, correct? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, this process in general will be enshrined into the Ethereum protocol and what you said as PBS, uh, and then it's going to remove the need for the relay because the system itself can filter through the blocks, which will definitely be a big plus when it comes to censorship. And along those lines, like Flashbot's also building a different solution called Suave, which they haven't released like details on, which is apparently like an encrypted MEV-aware mempool. And so maybe that I think that they believe that that will solve a lot of the censorship problems as well. So yeah, I definitely don't don't want to hype it up too much. Okay, and then uh, we've got an image on the screen here for the people who are listening on Apple or, or Spotify, and it's just the percentage of the relay market that's owned by Entity, and it looks like Flashbots is just around 80% market share. Why are they so dominant, and do you expect to see more builders like uh, 0x69 that you mentioned uh, earlier in the episode kind of spin up their own relays and uh, make the market a little bit more diversified? Yeah, so we touched on it earlier, but it's definitely good to dive in. That Flashbots is the only relay that's permissionless, meaning any block builder can send them blocks, whereas the other relays, you have to be whitelisted, and most of the time, those whitelisted block builders are themselves. On top of that, Flashbots, like they, they're running three block builders right now, and those three block builders, or two out of the three, are like the highest value block providers um, or block builders that we've seen. And so the combination of those two have sort of driven Flashbots to be the most used. But yeah, like you said, if we get more relays that are permissionless and those those relays are also non-censoring, those will, one, include as many blocks as possible and therefore more likely to have blocks that are higher value, um, but also um, they're, non-cens- or, yeah, they're non-censoring as well. And so the blocks are going to have even higher value than other blocks that are censored. And so if we get, yeah, especially a large swath of relays that are, are both of those categories, then I think Flashbot's dominance will definitely go down and a lot of the censorship concerns will go down. And, and so, yeah, and taking a look at uh, the block builder market share here, uh, again, you know, this is becoming a common theme. We see Flashbot's dominance. So, you know, uh, on the screen, we're showing a chart. Uh, it's a pie chart, and it kind of breaks down the 
builder market share uh, by each uh, block builder. So Flashbots has about 52% of the market share with the next largest being Blocks Route uh, at 19%. And then uh, in third, we have Blocks Builder Block builder is 0x69, uh, an anonymous builder uh, with about 10% of the market share. Uh, so again, yeah, I, we keep seeing a common trend here in Flashbots dominance. Um, and is I guess it, it does make sense that, you know, if they have the most popular relay, it's likely that, you know, the, the, they're feeding themselves these blocks. Is that the case? Yeah, so Flashbots is feeding, or feeding themselves like their own relay, their own blocks. But they've announced on Twitter, I think a couple of weeks ago, that they're going to start sending their blocks to other relays as well, as long as they are permissionless, like I said. And so, like, that centralization function where Flashbots has, like, the highest value blocks and then they also send to their relay, I think that's going to alleviate once Flashbots are sending their blocks to other permissionless relays. How do you feel about liquid staking derivative protocols? Like they have very much so grown in prominence. I mean, Lido has what thirty-two percent market share over over the uh, the, the liquid or the totally staked. So, and then there's Coinbase who's launching a derivative, and then you have you know Rocket Pool, Stakewise. There's a bunch of different solutions. So, why haven't they fully opted into MevBoost for all of the blocks that they're attesting to? Is there is there a reason for that? You think they'd want to give their users the highest yield? That is a great question. I wish I knew the answer to. It's funny because Lido, like on governance, specifically voted so that their their validator should opt into MEV Boost um, because obviously gets the highest rewards for the protocol, um, which is good for everyone. And so I don't know why they've had such a a slow um, and short uh, like opt in to MEV Boost. I think the numbers are a little better now than when that data was sorted. I think they're at um, like 72% of their blocks are coming through MEV Boost as opposed to um, like 40%, uh, which is definitely better. But yeah, I think it's because they use like a pretty diverse set of validators that I think most of the validators are opted in and a couple of them are probably either like figuring it out or don't even know that they're required to. Like there's definitely a lot of just probably communication issues and so I expect that number to be 100% within a few months uh, the same goes with Rocket Pool I think they, they had a similar thing as well uh, where they're basically required to opt into MEV Boost um, and then we're also seeing a trend with the exchanges starting to opt in little by little so again the Binance number there is increasing so they have I think over 50% of their blocks now are opted into MEV Boost, and then Coinbase is like very slowly ticking up. Um, and so I think, like we said before, it's kind of like a slow and gradual over time. More people are going to opt in because like they're sort of figuring out how to, and also they extract um, the most profits they can that way, and so you're just incentivized to do so. That's really cool. So I guess now that we understand that MEV is kind of being democratized through MEV Boost and giving access to you know people who don't have the expertise to extract it, the returns, um, would you say that Ethereum is more censorship resistant after the merge than it was before the merge? Like, are we in a better place now, or is it kind of like we're in this rough patch right now and we're gonna be really decentralized sometime soon in the future? Do I think we're better off now than we were in proof of work? No, because right now, like you said, we're in a rough patch. We're sort of figuring things out. Um, and just the fact that 
like these OFAC compliance came at the right time when it came to the merge, right? Um, in terms of, okay, like these entities sort of realized, hey, I might need to be compliant. So I think it was sort of the timing on that that made things more of a problem at the moment. I don't think it's 100% necessarily because it was proof of stake versus proof of work, although validators are like entities that people know and a lot of them are designated in the U.S. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely contributing. But I think in the long run, like obviously no one on Ethereum wants it to be censored. So I think there are definitely a lot of people like in the community, big actors that want to see it not be censored. There's just a lot of people in positions that feel like they sort of have to censor. And as long as we continue to, to design systems that are censorship resistant and not only should you not choose to censor, but that you can't censor, I think once we have systems like that, like Ethereum is going to be totally fine from a censorship standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And just a closing question that we ask all of our guests, and you're our first guest, so we're going to ask all of our guests. Um, what's one lesson that you've learned in crypto that you had your mind set on that you thought you were right, and then you realized in the end that you were actually wrong? And what did you learn from it? I think I know your answer, but uh, I had to ask it anyways. <laughs> yeah, I think this one's pretty obvious with me. It was um, Tara. Um, I was pretty blind to or like set on a decentralized stable coin that was like scalable and, and decentralized, which was impossible to build. And I thought um, at the very least, like they had the best model and they had a lot of applications around it that were essentially going to make it robust. And I thought adding Bitcoin and other assets as collateral was going to take it away from what was obviously a vulnerable model into something more robust, but Obviously now looking back, um, learned a lot of lessons in terms of sort of the, the cognitive dissonance and a lot of the sort of um, biases that I was prone to at the time. And yeah, it was one of the biggest lessons in my life and glad I went through it because, you know, I'm definitely a lot more aware now and better off. So yeah, it's definitely biggest mistake I've made, but yeah, onwards and upwards. Couldn't have said it better myself. Onwards and upwards. I was also a uh, Terra Luna bull, so I'd be lying if I uh, didn't didn't admit to that. But hey, Westy, we really appreciate having you on, or you coming on. Uh, do you mind telling the audience where they can find you? Yeah, definitely can find me on Twitter at Westy Capital, um, and then yeah, you can find my research at BlockworksResearch.com. Definitely check it out. Great. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. All right. There is a lot to unpack there. Westy just dropped a ton of knowledge on us. Dan, what do you think about MEV as it relates to censorship? Yeah, I think that's a great starting point. Um, really loved how he kind of labeled the relayers as this like filtering mechanism. Uh, and ultimately, like that's where this censorship layer resides, it seems. So, um, you know, it is a little bit concerning to me, right? Like, it, I guess I would pose the question to you, like, why do you think all of these... Uh, like while all these block builders are sending or using the same relayer and like and like it makes sense why these relayers are censoring in my opinion like if they're domiciled in the US or, or a country that mandates censorship like they don't really have much of a choice if they're an actual company as opposed to like this a non-builder style um, but yes yeah, so I guess I pose the question to you like why are the block builders and validators choosing uh, blocks from these relayers 
Yeah, I think it just comes to, down to like what you said, where they're actually domiciled. But I do think it's worth highlighting that this is a temporary thing. You know, there is PBS on Ethereum's roadmap. How long that'll take, I don't really know. But, you know, we saw Builder 06, 0x69 uh, kind of open source a new relay that's open to anyone and no one has to be whitelisted. So I think part of the problem lies in, you know, where you're domiciled and then also just getting a more competitive builder and relay market put in place. So that way there's competition amongst uh, all the different uh, sources. And I think, you know, the merge just happened a little over a month ago. So I think that we'll continue to see this decentralized over time. Yeah, I think it's definitely too early to start waving the white flag and admitting defeat on decentralization here. Uh, you know, of course, those are the topics that are going to get thrown around Twitter just because <laughs> that's what's going to go viral, right? But, um, you know, it, I think it's it's a concerning thing to keep an eye on. But in the current state, like, you know, we're, it's still a, a grind towards decentralization. And that's like, that's just how we operate in DeFi, right? Like we have the end goal. We need to keep that in mind. And it's about building building to get to that end goal. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think almost the more concerning point is the exclusive order flow. It is a little bit scary to think about like a block builder that can skip transactions from the public mempool and send them directly to themselves. And then all of a sudden they have greater MEV opportunity and then they win every bid. Uh, that's kind of where I get a little bit more concerned. Uh, but I mean, it's still too early to really see how it pans out. And at the same time, if they would do this, it would kind of ruin Ethereum's main value proposition, which is decentralization, which would weaken the value of the chain and then ultimately injure the actors who are involved in this block building process. So economically, the incentives don't really make sense. But uh, again, I mean, Ethereum, this is a temporary thing. And over the next two, two years or so, I think the problems will get fixed. Exclusive order flow is a great, a great another point to flag. I, like, I only expect this to grow uh, over, the coming, over the coming months and years. I think the, I, like, why it's attractive to protocols is, right, like, you can, if you can capture this MEV yourself and then return it to your users, like, that makes you more attractive to users, and, right, like, you need to get tracks and you need users, so how are you going to incentivize that? And throwing back rewards to these protocols makes a ton of sense. Now, that definitely creates a centralization risk, right? Like, currently, Manifold has their open MEV platform that is doing this through their secure RPC relay, um, or excuse me, their secure RPC pl uh, platform. And this is like, that's where the bottleneck is because if they have this super attractive platform uh, that creates this flywheel effect and continues to get more traction, then they are the centralization risk because they have this, all this power where all this order flow is coming in. Um, and it like, you know, it's, it's like feeding off itself. It only gets stronger because they can make better block, uh, more MEV filled blocks. Uh, so like, I understand why it's really attractive, but it would be great to see like more players populate into this space. Um, but even then, like, it's hard, like, it's only attractive if all these private mempools have all of the private f order flow in one spot, right? Um, so I don't know. It's like, how do you build a system around this? It becomes the ultimate question because it's, it seems pretty inevitable. What do you think about, like, right now it's what, 35% of blocks are vanilla blocks, meaning they're not using MevBoost. So do you think that kind of stays there? Do you think it continues to grow? Uh, or, and, and do you think that's like a threat to, to Ethereum and its decentralization? Uh, I do think this trends towards a, a, a higher participation rate in MevBoost, right? It, it becomes down to, like, this is a monetary game that we play. Um, validators are, have a purpose to make money. And, we, you know, Westy broke down how searchers make money, how block builders make money. Like, everybody has their incentives here. Uh, and, and blockchains are basically just incentivized games. That's in, in the simplest form. Uh, it's just a game theory. So 
I, I do think we're going to see the, the push to 100% participation in MEV boost uh, solely because you, you make more money uh, through these blocks that are, are opting into this network. Uh, as a threat to decentralization, again, this is like it comes back to that relayer conversation. Uh, we just need to see more relays that are permissionless and non-censoring to solve this problem. Um, and again, like that's where there's this the incentive problem because relays don't inherently profit off this ecosystem. Um, so it, I think it's just as the uh, as the MEV boost uh, structure grows and matures, then we'll have more participants that are willing to run relays and be block builders and validators and kind of like, you know, if you have Wesley kind of highlighted the the importance, uh, like how a lot of block builders also run a relay, right? Because they can feed blocks from their block builder to their relay. Uh, and so that's kind of how the relay then becomes, you know, it, it profitable to operate. Um, so I think we'll see more players in this space. And as you mentioned, Builder 0x69 uh, is kind of like leading that charge and uh, launch that permissionless uh, relayer. So we'll see, we'll see if that trend continues. But yeah, I definitely think we're going to... Uh, trend towards 100% MEV boost. Yeah, I'm curious too to see how uh, the Flashbot solution suave that Westy mentioned actually pans out because, I mean, an encrypted public mempool sounds like like a really promising solution to a lot of the problems that we're discussing right now. So that'll definitely be one that I keep a, a really close eye on. What, how do you think about MEV on L2s versus ETH L1 as, you know, L2s continue to gain adoption? Yeah, no, that's definitely a, an interesting topic. You know, my personal view on this is like, all right, Let's focus on L1s right now and like let's let's figure out how to finalize this system before we start worrying about MEV on L2s, right? Um, you know, there's still a lot of question marks around a, a whole different a whole number of areas around the MEV boost platform. Um, you know, as you mentioned, proposer builder separation isn't even officially enshrined within Ethereum yet. So to me, there's like okay, there's a ton of question marks here, but at the same time, like that will be a huge market as uh, Ethereum begins to scale, bull market reheats. You know, we're going to see a ton more users come into crypto, and that's going to push people onto L2s. Um, so with more transactions occurring on these L2s, yeah, the, the, the MEV market there will only expand as these sequencers become decentralized. Yeah, it seems like obviously everyone's talking about MEV on uh, the layer one, but I'm personally really excited about the upcoming narrative of having MEV on layer twos because I think MEV and you know transaction tips are like the perfect way to design a token for an L2 because you can capture that and actually re redistribute that to stakers. So that way you're not extracting from Ethereum uh, by you know making the native token of the L2 your gas token like Starkware is doing, uh, but instead you can actually you know return some of that value back to the the token holders and give it an actual function. Because right now the OP token, for example, it doesn't have very much utility. But I could definitely see a future where when they actually start to decentralize the process of of fraud proofs and and their sequencer, I could see that being a really good uh, value proposition for L2 tokens. My friend, that is an excellent take. That's something I've never thought about. Uh, I, I love that idea because you know that doesn't take away from like you're not like extracting value from the Ethereum base layer, uh, and you're just kind of like repurposing this opportunity to drive value to your platform. Wow, love that. Thanks, man. <laughs> Appreciate it. Came up with it on the spot. Anyways, uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of Zero X Research. We will be back here same day next week. Uh, we had a lot of fun, and we hope you did too. Thanks for tuning in.